Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This past week, I've had so many amazing conversations with those of you who listen to the fear and freedom of disappointing others. That seems like it was a really impactful episode, and I'm so glad that so many of you felt safe enough to reach out and tell me what it's been like being paralyzed by fear of disappointing others, what your next steps forward are going to be how you're planning to hold yourself as you inevitably disappoint others. And many of you said that it was really transformational to realize that someone was being disappointed when you chose to neglect your own needs and wants in favor of trying to please someone else. And knowing that that was so impactful and knowing also that as you live in a way that will please you and help you feel in alignment with your own inner wisdom, that it's going to bring you these beautiful connections and this ability to feel more safe in your relationships just really excites me because I think the more we're able to tap into our own inner authority, the more we magnetize people into our circle that love us and understand us the way we are, the more we're also able to break these generational trauma cycles that we pass on to others. And I think we really do create safer communities, more equality in our communities, more justice in our communities whenever we are doing this personal work with ourselves. And I can only imagine that good things will happen as more of us do the work to love and accept ourselves as more of us do the work to tap into our own inner authority, our own inner wisdom, and allow ourselves to live more freely from that place. The more we're able to love and accept ourselves, the better able we are to accept other people and to allow them to live differently than we do. So it was really exciting for me to hear your experiences with last week's episode. Now, before we dig into this week's podcast, which is going to build on last week's, so if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, go do that first. It's really going to help with building on the ideas for this week. But before we dive into that, I just want to remind you, if you want to make a donation to the podcast and support the work that we're doing here, there is a link in the show notes that allows me to devote more of my time to research to creating the podcast, and to creating resources that are freely available to people going through religious transition and trying to unravel 
religious trauma in their lives. And it just keeps this podcast going. And it allows me to continue doing the work that I love and hopefully continue to make an impact in your life and the lives of those you love. Now, today's episode is all about disappointing our parents. Now, I didn't call it the episode on disappointing our parents because as I was meeting with clients this week, what kept coming up in several of my sessions was this idea of honoring father and mother. And I think that's a deep subconscious idea for many of us, this idea that we're supposed to honor our father and mother in order to be good people. And we have a very specific idea of what we mean when we say honor father and mother. In fact, in preparation for this podcast, I delved into all kinds of articles on Focus on the Family and some Christian thought leaders and pastors' ideas on what it meant to honor father and mother. And I have to tell you, it was really, really triggering sometimes to read the thoughts and ideas that were out there. But I wanted to make sure that I was immersing myself in the culture today. What are people saying currently about honoring father and mother? What is being said in the Mormon arena about honoring father and mother? And did I think that those ideas were healthy when compared with what is currently being taught about healthy parent-child relationships in psychology and in social work. So we're going to kind of dig into this honor thy father and mother conundrum, kind of pull it apart a little bit, and hopefully at the end of this episode, you'll have a better understanding of what a healthy adult parent-child relationship looks like, why it might be hard for your parents to let go sometimes, and what you can do to create a better balance for yourself. Remember, we can't control our parents. We can't control how they react to things. We can't control their emotions. That is not our work to do. But we are going to be talking about our part in our relationship with our parents and some small steps we can take forward to create a healthier balance for ourselves, even if our parents are emotionally immature and unable or unwilling to deal with the big feelings that come from having your children mature into adulthood, have their own values, their own beliefs, and their own set of ideas about what is right and what is wrong for their own personal life. So come with me on this journey and let's start digging in. All right, so most of my clients, the scripture that they cite is Exodus 20, 12, which is honor thy father and mother that thy days may be long upon the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For many of us, we were taught that honoring our parents meant that we obeyed them without question, that we respected their opinions, often over our own, that we trusted their guidance, and basically that we just, we did what they said. In one of the articles I read, it was suggested that not only do we need to live our lives in such a way that it falls in alignment with our parents' values, but also there was this very codependent idea that we understand that our parents get a sense of self-worth from seeing that they did a good job raising us. And so we owed that to our parents, that we owe them this life that they envisioned for us, that we owe them a life of falling in line with their values and beliefs so that they can feel good about themselves. 
Now, the first thing I'm going to challenge is this idea that we owe our parents a certain lifestyle because they sacrificed to bear us and raise us. Some of the things I'm going to talk about right here are probably controversial. And while there are many psychologists that are beginning to look into this, there isn't a huge body of research. But what we do know is that none of us asked to be born. Our parents didn't make a contract with us at the time that they conceived. There wasn't some contract that said, okay, we will bear you, we will raise you, we will feed you and shelter you, and in return, this is what you will owe us. So there was no consent with birth. We didn't ask to come here. We didn't contract to be with our parents. Now, I know for those of you who are coming from a Mormon background, there is a part of your brain going, but, but the premortal existence. For LDS people, there is a belief that there is a life before this life and that we actually agreed to the life challenges that we would have. We agreed to come to the homes we came to. We agreed to the parents we had. We agreed to the siblings we had. We agreed to those experiences. And so it silences a lot of complaints that people have about abusive parents or about neglectful parents. And can I just, for a moment, let's talk about the fact that you still wouldn't have been able to fully consent to that contract. If, let's say, that actually did take place, let's say there actually was a pre-mortal existence, you can't consent to something when you don't know all of the details. So let's just say that that actually happened. In theory, you may have said, yeah, I'm coming to Earth. I'll be with these people. Things will be all right. You might not have known about generational trauma. You might not have known about a myriad of things that you experienced in your childhood. Therefore, you couldn't give full consent. You couldn't give full consent to what happened. So go ahead and allow yourself to understand that even if that doctrine from Mormonism is coming up, that somehow you consented to have these parents and these experiences, that you can't give full consent without knowing all of the details. And there is no way you could have known all of the details of what was coming especially if you come to earth and your memory is wiped and you have no remembrance of a premortal existence, there is no way to get full consent. So that allowed me to kind of help release this idea of anything traumatic that happened to me in childhood, anything that shaped me in ways that were negative or created attachment issues for me, that I somehow consented to that. And so I just needed to suck it up buttercup. So if you have feelings about that, but you feel guilty or you feel ashamed for having those feelings because you feel like you somehow consented to that in some life before this life, allow yourself to realize there is no way you could have consented fully because you didn't have all the details. Let that marinate for a little bit. That allowed me to release a lot of the pent-up guilt I had about the feelings I had about my childhood. And releasing that guilt allowed me to then start acknowledging things that happened to me in my childhood, how it affected me so that I could begin to heal those things. Because until we can acknowledge them, we can't look at them consciously. And until we look at things consciously, we can't begin to pull them apart, give ourselves the care and the validation that we need, and we can't seek resolution. So know that if that's getting in the way, that's a strategy that you can use. So first of all, we didn't consent to being born. That was a decision our parents made 
for their own benefit. They didn't think to themselves, does this child want to be born? They thought to themselves, am I ready to be a parent? Is parenting an experience I would like to have? And they had kids based on their own needs, their own wants, their own values, and their own beliefs. That had nothing to do with you. Your parents chose to be parents for themselves. Now, once you were born, they had obligations and responsibilities to care for you, to look out for your best interests, to provide food and shelter and clothing for you. And the state reinforces that to a certain extent to make sure that kids are not in dangerous situations and that their basic needs are being taken care of. And granted, there are all kinds of flaws in that system, but your parents, part of the obligation they took on when they decided to be parents was to provide you with food, shelter, clothing, and as much love and safety as they were capable of giving. Again, you are not part of this equation. Your parents are deciding, do we want to be parents? Do we want the responsibility of caring for this child for 18 plus years? Do we want the responsibility of having to provide love and emotional support to this child? And all of that was something they decided for themselves for their own benefit. And what they may not have realized is when they decided to become parents, they were also choosing to accept whatever child they were given, whatever child came into their home. Now, granted, this is not often how parents look at it. Often we have a mental picture of what that child is going to be like, what they're going to look like, what kind of personality they're going to have. But when we take the genetic gamble to have a child, we are saying, whether we realize it or not, I am open to parenting whatever child comes into my home. And I will provide food, shelter, clothing, emotional support, and love and acceptance for whatever child comes into my home. At least that's how it would be if we had healthy parents. But often our parents make the decision to become parents for their own needs, not because of the needs of the child. If parents went into the decision to become parents, understanding I could have a child that's neurodivergent. I could have a child that's LGBTQIA+. I could have a child that has a completely different disposition and personality than I have. And all of that is welcome here and all of that is okay. I think if we went into parenting with that understanding, we'd have much more healthy experiences in parent-child relationships But because our parents often go into the contract for their own reasons, for their own needs, sometimes we create this really interesting power dynamic. There's expectations going into parenting that our children will be a certain way, that they'll look a certain way, and that they're going to meet certain of our needs as a parent. It's about our own needs when we choose to become parents. It's not necessarily about the child understand that this idea that we owe our parents is actually pretty ridiculous because our parents became parents for their own needs and they had certain expectations that met their own needs, not necessarily took into account the needs of the child that they would be getting. There's this other idea that I read that our parents get a sense of self-worth from parenting us and it is not our obligation to 
create self-worth for anyone. Like I said in the last episode, our obligation is to make sure that we're not actively harming anyone else's self-worth, but it is not our job to build someone else's self-worth. In fact, we can't build someone else's self-worth. Not our parents, not our kids. We can't build that for someone else. We can create safe spaces where people can explore themselves, but self-worth comes from our own inner validation. So we can tell people that they're good at things. We can give them praise and validation, but without their own validation coming from within inside, it's just a hit of self-esteem, which can act like a drug. We can become addicted to praise when we're getting outside validation, but we don't give ourselves that inner validation. So We can do our part to build other people up, but even that won't create self-worth in others unless they do their own work to get to know themselves, to accept what they find there, and to then validate themselves. That is their work to do. Now, for our own kids, we can create safe spaces and ask curiosity questions to help our children do that for themselves. But even then, we cannot create self-worth in our kids. We can only model it with what we do with ourselves and create safe space for them to explore that on their own. Know that this idea that honoring father and mother means that we owe them or that we are required to build up their sense of self-worth, all of those things are unhealthy and rather codependent ideas. So the question then becomes, is there a healthy way to honor father and mother? Because often, whenever we get into this idea of honoring father and mother, and we start bringing up like, you don't owe your parents for them bringing you into the world. You don't owe them for giving up their college career to stay at home and mother you. You don't owe them for whatever sacrifices they made, they became parents for themselves. And they gave up those things because they wanted something else more. So you don't owe them for giving you life and you don't owe them for providing basic necessities in your childhood. You might be grateful for the things that they gave you. You might be awed by sacrifices that they made, but it still doesn't mean that you owe them your life. When they became parents, whether they knew it or not, they were choosing to give life to a completely separate person, someone who is different than them. Even if you share values, you're different than your parents, and that's how it's meant to be. That is not an unhealthy thing. Human development is lined up in such a way that we have several periods of differentiation. We're meant to be completely unique individuals. We're not meant to be carbon copies of our parents. Understand that when you find that there are places where you are individual, where you're different, that that's as it should be. It's as nature designed it to be. We are meant to be unique and individual, and your parents were signing up for that whenever they made that leap into parenthood. So what does it mean to honor parents in a way that is not codependent or dysfunctional? So I'm going to do something that's very, very Mormon here. 
In fact, as I put this down, I almost felt like I was up at the pulpit giving a talk like I used to in church because one of the things I would often do is turn to the dictionary and I did it again this time, but it was really helpful. And so I was like, what does it even mean to honor? Because for me growing up, honor and obey were often conflated. To honor your parents meant to obey your parents and to fulfill their wishes. That's what honor meant. And honor and obey are two completely different things. Today, I just focused on honor, which is to regard with great respect. Now, I know there's some of you here saying, okay, wait a second. My parents were crap. They treated me like crap. They were abusive. They belittled me actively. There is no way I'm going to regard them with great respect. And I want to say to you, that's valid. Stick with me. I'm not telling you you have to forgive your parents. I'm not telling you you have to give them respect or honor in any of the ways that you may have been taught. So notice the trigger. If you're feeling triggered right now, notice that. Pause if you need to. Care for it. And know that you are allowed to feel all of those feelings. They're all valid. They all make sense. You are allowed to be distant or estranged from your parents if that's what you've had to do in order to care for yourself. And there's still a way for you to honor your parents that also honors your safety. So when you're ready, come on back to the podcast and we'll just explore these ideas when you feel like you've taken care of your triggers. But I know that that is a triggering idea for a lot of people who have had very tumultuous childhoods with narcissistic or abusive parents or just parents that were neglectful or, you know, codependent in some way. All right, there are two different kinds of respect. So the first kind of respect is the respect we all deserve as human beings. You are a completely unique expression of humanity. You are worthy as you are. You have a unique perspective. You have a unique lens that you look at life through. You have a unique understanding because of that lens. And that deserves to be respected and valued. And the second kind of respect is what we give to authority figures. And I really loved something that Brenna Tui, I hope I'm saying that right, she's an author. She had a quote that was absolutely profound when I heard it a couple of years ago. She said, sometimes people use respect to mean treating someone like a person, and sometimes they use respect to mean treating someone like an authority. And sometimes people who are used to being treated like an authority say, if you won't respect me, I won't respect you. And they mean, if you won't treat me like an authority, I won't treat you like a person. And they think they're being fair, but they aren't. And it's not okay. And I think sometimes this happens with our parents. Our parents say, I'll respect you if you respect me. I find that this especially happens in narcissistic homes where we might have a narcissistic parent that says, well, if you want to be respected, then you have to respect me. But sometimes what they actually mean is, you have to treat me like an authority for me to treat you like a person. And it's not fair. And it's not okay. And we can get those things confused and we can feel like a bad person because we 
have to create boundaries or space in order to heal or in order to protect our sanity or our safety. And that can be construed as we're not giving respect and so therefore we don't deserve respect. There are two different kinds of respect at play here. Know that no matter what, even if you defy authority, question authority, speak out publicly, disappoint others, you deserve respect as a human being, as an adult. You deserve to be treated as worthy and equal, even when people disagree with you. Know that if you're in that conundrum where your parent is pulling the authority card and saying, you have to respect me as an authority if you want me to respect you as a human being, that there's an unfairness there. And sometimes we don't have the words for it. So I hope that by bringing this up, it gives you words for it because it's really helped me when I've been in conversations with people who want to pull an authority card who want to use this as a carrot to entice me to respect them as an authority so that then they'll quit using dehumanizing language against me or quit invalidating my point of view. So it's not the same things. I can respect you as a person and not respect you as an authority. I can say, hey, your views are worthwhile. You're allowed to have your own beliefs, your own experience, your own values. I don't agree with them, but if they work for you, great, and not have to listen to them as an authority. So know that the respect we give humans is inherent. We have inherent worth, no matter how different people are from us. It isn't something that's earned. It's just what is due to every human, because every human life has value and worth. On the other hand, respect as an authority is something that's earned. So let's talk about what an authority is. So an authority is the power someone has to make decisions on behalf of an organization. Authority also gives someone the power to instruct and command others. And they have the power to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. So obedience is a big deal when it comes to respecting authorities. And this is where I feel like Christian, Mormon, and Jehovah's Witness leaders get really confused because they conflate respecting authority with respecting someone's humanity. They feel like respect is due to authority figures, regardless of how they act, regardless of your age, regardless of whether the person is acting in accordance with the values held by the group or not, and whether they're actively committing harm against individuals, whether their authority is beneficial to everyone in the group or only specific people. And when that authority is being abused to oppress certain people or to try to control other people or control the narrative, it deserves to be called out. There deserves to be a certain amount of disrespect to say, hey, you are utilizing your power in a way that is harmful. You're utilizing your power in a way that is destructive, that actively causes injustice, that others or marginalizes other people. But in our parents' case, when we were children, our parents had authority to make decisions they thought were in our best interest for us until we turned 18. And legally, they're protected to do that. 
because they were adults that could care for themselves and we were children who could not. We don't come out of the womb ready to go to work, care for ourselves, feed ourselves, even go to the bathroom on our own. We can't do that. We need adults. So it makes sense that we have authority figures, adult parents who make decisions on how many fruits and vegetables we're going to eat and when we go to the doctor and how much clothing we wear when we go out in the snow and who we're allowed to be around unsupervised. It makes sense that we have parents that are thinking about these things because we're incapable of making those decisions. Now, sometimes our parents, their lives are run by their own inner child, their own wounded inner self, and they make really crappy decisions sometimes. But by and large, the survival of our species works best when there is an adult in charge of the small child that is aware of and trying to care for the well-being of the child. And so our state protects that right for parents to make decisions on behalf of the well-being of their child. And because this is the way it's structured, it naturally creates a power dynamic in which they have more power and we have less or none. If we have healthy parents, there's a mutual respect in our home where our parents create safe and accepting space for us to show up as we truly are, and we're taught how to see others. This includes our parents as humans worthy of acceptance and kindness. And in really, really, really healthy homes, our parents would have checked in with us about our experience, gotten our feedback, and taken it into consideration. And they would have worked with us to create an environment that was a win-win for everyone involved. So, When we are born into healthy homes, and many of us were not, I would say the great majority of us were not, most of us are born into dysfunctional homes because there are generations and generations of trauma that have been handed down. And our parents were coping with it just like we're coping with it, just like their parents were coping with it. We have lots of traumas, small and big, that have been handed down through the generations, and only now have we gotten those tools that we can start healing that generational trauma, giving words to what we're experiencing and starting to move forward. So many of us did not have healthy parents. We had parents that their way was the authority on how things should be done. And we either did things their way or we hit the highway. But in very healthy homes, what would have happened is you would have had parents that did make decisions for their children that had boundaries on behavior, on what was acceptable and what was not acceptable in the home, but who would have continually checked in with children and said, hey, how is this going for you? How are you receiving this? Do you have feedback for me as your parent? I'm learning as I go. I don't have all the answers. I want to make sure you're safe and happy. And I'm doing my best here, but any feedback you can give me would help me do a better job as your parent. So regular check-ins. How's it going for you? Are you getting your needs met? Do you feel like you get enough time and attention? Do you have enough freedom? Do you feel safe to be yourself here? Like, let's talk about this. And as that child develops, they're going to have an easier time with adjusting the rules as the child matures. The amount of parental authority needed when a child is an infant is completely different than the amount of authority and control needed when the child is 17. 
that child's brain has developed immensely in 17 years. That child's life experience has matured. Their executive function, their critical thinking skills, all of that has matured. And so the level of parental authority needed at 17 is completely different than the level of parental authority needed right after birth. Unfortunately, sometimes our parents have a hard time letting go. This often has to do with their own attachment wounds with their own parents. So those childhood wounds that are often inside of us come to play whenever they're in other attached relationships. So my guess is the attachment wounds that your parents had with their own parents also showed up in their relationships with you and probably with their spouse. And those dynamics probably also show up in their friendships and their work relationships as well. So it's not just you. If you can do anything during this podcast episode, I want you to release this idea that your parents' disappointment and disapproval is about you. It's often about things inside of them, their own wounds, their own inability to hold difficult emotions, either because they were never taught how or they don't know how to use the tools that they were given, or it's about their own expectations. And many of those expectations are subconscious. And so when those things get in the way, it can create conflict in the parent-child relationship, and it can become unbearable sometimes for us to relate in healthy ways with our families of origin. Now, relationships are two ways. I also want to talk really quick about the expectations and the wounds we have as children. Many times when we're afraid of disappointing our parents, it's not just because our parents are coming from an unhealthy place. Sometimes it's because we're coming from an unhealthy place as well. We may still be trying to mold and shape our parents into the kind of parents that can validate us and accept us as we are. And sometimes we do this because we don't want to do the difficult work of looking inward, looking at our wounds, grieving things that we wanted desperately and didn't get. Maybe we feel afraid of sitting with our real selves and learning to validate ourselves. It feels so much easier sometimes to look to our parents and say, you need to change. You need to love me and accept me as I am because it's much more difficult to sit with ourselves and say, this is where I feel shame. This is where I feel inadequate. These are the wounds I'm carrying from my childhood. This is what I'm really afraid of. And to allow ourselves to sit there and reparent ourselves and give ourselves the validation, the love, the care, and the concern that we need. Because it is a lot of work. And I do mean that. Reparenting ourselves is a lot of work. Sometimes we try to avoid that and offload the problems in our lives completely on our parents. So know that if you have tumultuous relationships with your parents, that they have a part and you have a part. They are 100% responsible for their part. You are not responsible for their childhood wounds. You are not responsible for their emotions. And you're not responsible for their expectations. That is 100% them. But 50% of any relationship that we're in is our responsibility. Allow yourself to get curious with, what am I hoping to get from my parents? And why do I need them to change that? 
what part do I play in this? Are there boundaries I'm not setting? Are there things I'm not communicating? Are there things I'm hoping will just get better with time? Am I fully owning my part? And if not, why not? Remember, there's no good or bad here. There's no right or wrong. It's just getting curious, asking ourselves, what needs am I trying to get met? Are those needs getting met? And if not, what can I do differently? How can I get closer to what I want? In relationships, even relationships with our parents, it can be so tempting to blame everything on our parents. I know that. I've been there. There have been times and there are still times where I want to blame the dysfunction in my life completely on my parents. And while they definitely played a part, while my parents were a formative force in my life, I'm an adult now and I am 100% responsible for how I live now. I may not have had very much control as a child, but I am a 42-year-old woman and I have complete 100% responsibility in my life for what's going on now. That was a tough pill to swallow when I first realized that, that I'm 100% responsible for my life now. That didn't mean that I didn't have to grieve what happened to me as a child. That didn't mean I didn't have to adopt that part of me. I, I often talk about that as like child protective services. I went in and took that part of me and said, okay, like you are my child now and I will validate you in the ways you need to be validated. I'll listen to you. I will accept you regardless. I will always be on your side. I will listen to your emotions. I will comfort you when you need comfort. I'll be in your corner no matter what. So I had to do that for my child. I had to decide I will protect you over everyone else. I'm in your corner. And that was hard. It was difficult. But we get to a place where we recognize I have difficult things I have to wade through and there are things I'm going to have to acknowledge from my childhood, but ultimately it's my responsibility to heal and to change the things that I can no longer tolerate or the things that just I don't like anymore. I have the power because I'm the adult now and I can do that for myself. Now, let's talk really quick about why our parents have a hard time letting go. So letting go as children mature involves some loss for parents. And for those of you who have kids that are teenagers like I do, I can see that loss kind of looming on the horizon. And there are already small losses that I've had to experience as they've gotten older. I have a child that is more interested in hanging out with their friends than spending time with me. He wants to listen to his music instead of have conversations with me. And I miss the chatterbox that used to talk my ear off and tell me about everything that was going through his head. I miss the little sidekick that tagged along with me everywhere I went. I miss hearing his thoughts. I miss knowing all of his friends. He has lots of friends at high school that I don't know. He has lots of friends that I do know, but he talks about people occasionally that I'm like, I don't know who that is. Who's that? He's like, oh yeah, he sits next to me in algebra. We play Mancala sometimes. He's a cool kid. So understanding that there are people in my kids' lives that I don't know anymore. 
we have a level of differentiation that is going on where he has a life that is apart and separate from my life. There is a grieving that has to happen as our children mature and differentiate because now they are no longer an extension of ourselves. They are no longer the cute little kid that follows us around all the time. They are becoming their own person. And so the little kid is gone and we have to grieve that loss, grieve the kid that wanted to crawl into our lap and snuggle all the time. And now that he's six foot tall, doesn't fit in your lap. We have to grieve that. But if we're emotionally incapable of doing that, if we're dissociated from ourselves, we might not recognize that what we're feeling is grief. And we might not know how to sit with that emotion and to care for that emotion. So understand that your parents might be in that position where they feel grief and loss, but they don't know how to identify it or how to move through it without some assistance. And again, it is not your job to be your parent's therapist. It is absolutely okay to say, hey, your feelings are valid. And you absolutely deserve somebody to listen to you and validate you. And I really recommend you go and talk to a trusted friend or to a therapist, somebody who's not so close to this situation because I'm healing right now and I can't be that listening ear for you right now. I'm getting my own help elsewhere and you get your own help elsewhere. And then we can come together once we've figured things out and we're less likely to trigger each other. We can talk about what we've discovered if you're open to that. Do understand that your parents may just not have the emotional tools to recognize what they're feeling and work through it. This is also really difficult for parents who have attachment wounds from childhood. When you were a child, they felt securely attached to you because children love so unconditionally. No matter what, they forgive easily, they love unconditionally, and because you needed them, they felt secure in their attachment with you. But now that you're getting older and there's more interdependence and less dependence, it may feel really threatening because it may be bringing up some of their attachment wounds. So do know that there may be this panic that happens because as you get more distant, as you become your own person, they may start to feel abandoned. And again, without an emotional toolbox, they may not realize that that's what's going on for them without some outside assistance. The other loss that our parents sustain as we mature is a loss of control. So for our parents, especially the ones that come from long lines of generational trauma, there's often a lot of anxiety and control helps them feel less anxious. So our parents may turn to overexerting control on everything and everyone around them as a way to get a sense of safety and comfort for themselves. Now, what happens is as you mature, they lose some control over your life and they may try to get that back to help themselves feel more safe But as you continue to push back, it brings up their anxiety. It's really triggering for them. It makes them have to confront the uncertainty of the future, any uncertainties that are going on inside of them, and it can be really, really, really uncomfortable. Again, without a fully stocked emotional toolbox, sometimes our parents 
aren't able to identify the anxiety and they're not able to work through it without third-party help. All of that is on our parents' plate. We're going to talk now about what we can do to create healthy adult-child relationships. So I know for many of us, we're like, yeah, that all resonates, but I don't even know what a healthy adult-child relationship would look like. So we're going to kind of delve into that really quick as well. Ideally, your parents would release more and more control to you as you develop into an adult. And by the age of 18 to 25, they would have fully released the authority role where they take charge of your life and now would move more into a mentor role where they're available for consultation and advice if you ask for it. So by the time you're 18 to 25, they've morphed into this role where they see you as a peer And they allow you the autonomy to ask for consultation or mentorship if you need it. Fully understanding that they can give you their opinion, they can advise you, but you are a complete, mature adult that can make a decision for yourself. Healthy parents will encourage you to do that. They'll say, well, if I were in your shoes, this is what I would do, and this is why I would do it, but I'm not you. What does your gut say? Or a healthy parent just ask questions. What do you feel you want to do? What are the pros and cons of that? What are some of your fears? What gets in the way? In an ideal world, healthy adult-child relationships would look like friendships where we want the best for the other person. We trust them to make decisions. We encourage them to get curious. Now, One of the things I learned from a parenting expert, we went to a parenting seminar like three years ago, and I can't remember the person's name, but one of the things I took away, and I think I only took one thing away from this, the thing I took away from the seminar was instead of praising or criticizing a child for their successes or their failures, asking them how they felt about it. So I've started doing that. We started doing that a couple of years ago. When my child comes home with a report card asking him, how do you feel about these grades? What do you feel like you did really well? What are you going to do different next time? My kids are the captains of their life. And I'm there to help them hear their voice. As they get older, I'm trying to consciously see myself less as their protector and more as the person who empowers them to protect themselves. Am I successful at this 100% of the time? No. No, I'm not. Am I also honest about that with my kids? Yes. So my kids know that I'm doing the best I can and that I am open to feedback. We have regular conversations, and they are very honest with me. As kindly as they can be, and sometimes it's kinder than others, about where we are really doing well, and maybe where we need some tweaks in our relationships. But this is so important when parents understand that their job isn't to protect their kids from every harm that will happen. What comes to mind for me is Finding Nemo, where Marlon says to Dory, he says, I promised him I'd never let anything happen to him. And Dory goes, well, you can't never let anything happen to him then nothing would happen to him. Not much fun for little Fabio. That is exactly, I think, what our parents, especially ones who came from very tumultuous childhoods 
or neglectful childhoods, sometimes they show their love by being overly controlling and not letting go because they want you to know they care. They want you to know that they're there to protect you from any traumatic thing that could ever happen. And it often feels like they don't trust us instead. Again, it comes from their inner wounds and their inner fears. And so understanding that many parents become overbearing and over-controlling and they have a hard time letting go because they want to protect you and keep you safe from any harm that could ever happen out there. But that is not their responsibility as you move into adulthood. And your responsibility is to not have to blanket those childhood wounds or those fears or anxieties and keep them from having to face them. The role that we're trying to get into is both of us get to be mature adults who deal with our own problems, but we lean on each other for support when asked. I can come to you with my problems. I can come and say, hey, I'm really struggling with something. Do you have time or space for me to talk to you about this? And that person understands my job is to hear you and to create space for you and to offer advice or consultation if you want it, but more importantly, to help you get more clear about what your own voice inside of you is saying. And it works both ways with parents and children as we get older. We're allowed to do this for our parents as well. We're allowed to ask them curiosity questions and help them get curious about things. We're trying to move into a peer role where we're equals. Now, this kind of healthy relationship is only possible when both parents and children are conscious of their own emotions and we're able to care for our own emotions. Releasing children as they become adults requires parents to care for some big emotions like grief over the loss of having you in the home. Releasing children as they become adults requires parents to care for some big emotions like grief over the loss of having you in the home and anxiety over the uncertainty of the future. A lot of parents feel really anxious about whether they did enough to prepare you for adulthood, whether they gave you all the tools that you needed to be successful. And sometimes what happens is they also have to have the ability to identify and care for feelings like regret. Maybe as you mature, they realize there are lessons they didn't teach you. Or like in the case of me with my mother, as I've come to her and talked about things that happened in my childhood, she's had to care for regret of things that she wishes she had done differently. And along with that regret, maybe feelings of guilt wishing that you had done things differently, that you had behaved in a different way, or even shame, feeling like you weren't a good mother or you weren't a good parent or you somehow were not enough. As our children mature, we are forced to look at ourselves in ways that sometimes are really uncomfortable and we have to grieve loss. Our babies are born, they grow up, they become adults And then they leave our home. And that creates some grief. I have coaching friends that specifically coach empty nesters because of the grief. So we have to be able to care for grief. We have to be able to care for the anxiety of the unknown. Will our kids be successful in adulthood? Will they find somebody that loves them and cares for them? Will they be able to navigate the world well without us beside them? Yeah, 
there's some big emotions here. And sometimes we feel guilt and shame about what happened in the past as well. We have to be able to care for that too. So now I want us to talk about how we can honor parents who may have difficulty accepting our adulthood. And this works for parents that are healthy as well. But especially I want to address those of us who have parents who either are emotionally immature or who are narcissistic or who were abusive or just emotionally unavailable, just not there. How do we honor those parents? The first way is by trusting ourselves. I love what Glennon Doyle says in her book, Untamed. She says, we become responsible adults when we become disobedient daughters. When we finally realize the best way to honor our parents is to trust fully the women they raised, ourselves. One of the best ways we can honor our parents is to learn to acknowledge, then accept, and then trust the people our parents helped to shape. When we see ourselves as valuable and worthy, we are honoring our parents. When we trust our inner wisdom, we are honoring our parents. To me, there is no better way to honor our parents than to learn to fully accept ourselves and take responsibility for our own lives. This means occasionally we're going to disappoint our parents because they are different people than us. They have different values. They have different beliefs. They have different lived experience. We were never meant to be a carbon copy of them. We honor our parents by living deeply anchored lives where we anchor into our own values, our own beliefs, and we trust ourselves deeply with the lives that we're creating. I find that this is one of the most healing ideas when we have dysfunctional relationships with our parents. Understanding that one of the ways I honor you is by learning to love and trust myself, this person that you helped create. I honor what you brought into the world. And in honoring myself, I honor you. The second thing we can do to honor our parents is to respect our parents' inherent worth as a human. This does not mean we will agree on anything. This also doesn't mean that we would do things similarly. We may not have the same values or beliefs, but we can understand that you are a unique expression of humanity. And that is worthy of respect. I find that this is probably the hardest thing to do as the adult child of dysfunctional parents. If accepting the adulthood of children is the parent's hardest hurdle, Accepting our parents' fallibility with empathy is our biggest hurdle as children. Our parents made mistakes. Some of the mistakes they made have been highly traumatic. As we learn to see our own worth, it's actually going to be easier to see our parents as complex and worthy individuals that have their own values, their own beliefs, their own dreams, insecurities, and childhood wounds. As you learn to love yourself in your own messiness, you become better able to accept your parents in theirs. Now, something that really helps me with this, and I haven't had to use it in a little while, but when my parents were coming at me from their deep place of anxiety or insecurity, their attachment wounds, their need to control outcomes, 
when my parents came from that place, when I disappointed them, I would often listen to the things that they were saying and visualize their inner child saying them. It helped me have more compassion for them, to recognize that this part of them that needed control, that was afraid of being abandoned, that was feeling like they weren't enough as a parent, that was worried about what other people would think of them, that, you know, just felt this deep fear and shame, that it was the childhood part of them that still needed validation and love from their parents. Picturing them as a small child actually really helped me to find compassion and empathy for them. Now, it didn't mean that in that moment I could help care for those wounds. I had my own wounds I needed to tend to first. It's very much like the airplane analogy that we hear so frequently where you put on your oxygen mask first and then you put on someone else's. I can't give to someone else what I don't have myself. So I was not able to care for my parents' wounds in any way, shape, or form while I was still trying to figure out my own wounds and care for mine. And so I had some pretty big boundaries and some separation at the beginning so that I could give myself the space to hear myself and to heal. But as I've gotten more confident with myself, as I've learned to accept and trust myself more, it feels safer to be with my parents, even when they're having an insecure moment, even when they're having some big feelings. It's easier for me now to hold safe space for them, to ask them curiosity questions, to allow them to explore their feelings without feeling like I need to take that on. I've been able to heal a lot of the codependency, so I don't feel personally responsible for their emotions anymore. And I recognize that what is speaking is a wounded part of them, and I can hold space for that. But first, I had to heal myself. So understand that this is something you can use as you get to a place where you feel more confident with yourself. You have a sense of identity. You've accepted yourself. You've learned to trust yourself. You're better at giving yourself compassion instead of judgment. As you root into that, it will then be easier to give your parents the respect you would give any other human, even when they're having a meltdown. And it's even easier for me to set boundaries when I recognize that it is the young child part of my parents that's freaking out. It's easier for me to set boundaries and be really clear to just say, it sounds like you have some really big feelings about this and we're not really getting anywhere. I don't really understand what these big feelings are. Take some time, figure out what you're feeling, figure out what's going on for you, and then let's try a conversation again. I want to hear what you have to say when you know what it is that you have to say, however long it takes. I'll be here when you're ready to talk. When we've learned how to care for our inner child, we can create safe space for our parents' inner child to recognize when they're feeling big emotions and to help them feel secure enough to go and explore that on their own. Because remember, that's their responsibility. It's not our job to save their inner child. It's just our job to create safe space for anyone that we want to have a relationship with, whether it's our children, our spouse, our parents, or our best friends, to be able to create safe space and be like, wow, okay, you've got some big feelings going on here. And when they can't communicate them, to give them space to go and figure that out 
and let them know I will be here when you're ready to talk. I would love to hear what's going on for you. All right, the third thing we can do to create healthy relationships is when we're feeling that guilt is to gauge our life by our own values and beliefs. Now, in order to do this, we need to know what our own values and beliefs are. And one of the ways we do that is by tapping into our emotions. And I go through this step by step on the Emancipate Yourself app. We go through the entire process of how to tap into your emotions and then how to use those emotions as a guide to your thoughts which will lead you to your values and your beliefs, your likes and your dislikes, your wants and your don't wants. It's going to help you find your boundaries. So if you're wanting help with that, if you're hearing this and thinking, I don't even know what my values and beliefs are, go check out the Emancipate Yourself app. Everyone that is using it right now has said it is incredibly helpful. We are changing lives over there. And we have a weekly group call where you get not only the support of a community, but I'm going to coach you personally through things that are coming up for you. And all of that happens for like $39.99 a month. It was the least expensive way I could provide support to as many people as possible. So if this sounds like something that you're like, I don't even know how I would judge if I'm in alignment with my values and beliefs, go over there. Don't wait any longer. Go over there. There's a seven-day free trial and you can try it out for seven days And you can even be a part of one of the calls. If you love what you find there, then join us. Be one of the regulars. Be part of the community and the way that we're shaping new courses. But what we do is we use our emotions to gauge what feels in alignment for us and what does not. And to get curious about what we value and believe now. So if we're feeling guilt and we check in with our own values and beliefs, and we find we're living in alignment with ourself in the current, in the present, we know that something is going on that's underlying. It's an underlying part of our childhood that we believe should be different. And we can just get curious with that, bring it up into the conscious where we can start to work through that. The fourth thing is to be brave enough to engage in healthy conflict. And this is where I find most of us shrink We want to avoid conflict at all costs, usually because of our own attachment wounds, and we're afraid of being disowned. But if we're doing the first three, this one becomes easier. Part of being an adult is knowing what's okay with you and what is not, and communicating that clearly to others. Sometimes we just wait it out with our parents. I know you've done this. I'm just going home for Christmas for four days. I mean, my mom will probably say that thing and my dad will probably do this, but I'm just not going to say anything. I'm not going to rock the boat because it's only a few days. But what happens? All those Christmases, all those family dinners, all those vacations together, they all pile up into one huge resentment pile because we don't communicate our boundaries when they're made known to us. So when we notice that we're feeling anger or resentment or frustration, we don't stop and get curious with ourselves and figure out why am I feeling this? What's going on? And then we don't communicate. We hope it'll just magically get better, but that's not how relationships work. We have to get really clear with ourselves about what's okay and what's not okay. And then we have to grow the cajones to then go 
and talk to our family members and say, hey, when this thing happened, this is how I felt. This is what I'd like to see change so that we can be closer because I care about you. I love you and want you in my life. And I can't keep operating like this. This doesn't feel safe for me. This doesn't work for me. And the key is to communicate it clearly, specifically. That one's really important. You can't just say, I don't trust you. You have to say, hey, I don't like it when you talk about me behind my back. Or, hey, I don't like it when you make plans with me, but then you bail on me five minutes before we're supposed to get together. Or, hey, I don't like it when you talk to me like I'm a child. This is specifically what I mean. It makes me feel infantilized. I don't like that. So get super specific with your parents. You're going to need to do this consistently. Remember, we have neural pathways at work here, both for you and your parents. The reason you revert back to your childhood when you go back home is because your brain is like, oh yeah, we're in this environment. This is how we behave. You have to reprogram that. Your parents have to reprogram the way they treat you as well. The last time you lived at home with them, you were a teenager. So when you come back home, the last way they remember relating with you under that roof was as a teenager. Unless both of you are emotionally mature, doing your own work, that is not going to happen naturally. You're going to have to sit down and say, hey, I'm not 15 anymore. Remember, I'm 42. I know how to load a dishwasher. You've been teaching me since I was eight. I got this. Or, hey, I'm now a parent of my own children. I don't like it when you parent me in this way. I'm a grown woman. Okay, I don't have a curfew. I don't need to come home by a specific time. Things like that. You have to communicate them and you're going to have to do it consistently. And over time, the behavior will change. And you can do it lovingly and firmly. This is how it is. I love you and I want to be close to you. This needs to change so we both feel safer with one another. Nothing can change if nothing is acknowledged. Your parents are not mind readers. You aren't a mind reader. We're going to have to have adult conversations in order to have healthy relationships. This is part of growing up. It is one of the least pleasant parts of growing up. But learning to communicate specifically when we're in conflict is one of the best things we can do to create close relationships. That blew my mind when I realized that. That conflict wasn't a relationship destroyer. Conflict could be a relationship builder. Because if I can trust you to come to me with conflict, then I can trust you more. And if I know that we're going to talk things out, I don't have to walk around on eggshells worrying if I'm disappointing you, worrying if you're resentful, worrying if you're carrying around anger. We're going to have some talks. We're going to figure it out and we're going to find a win-win for both of us. And the last thing we can do because this is going to be scary work, is make a parachute with our fear. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Many of us are afraid we'll be abandoned if we express our boundaries with our parents or if we make decisions they wouldn't approve of. Taking that step forward might feel as crazy and terrifying as jumping out of a perfectly good airplane at high altitudes. The only reason we can make those leaps is when we know we have a parachute. 
When you're doing something that terrifies you, it helps you to have a plan beforehand of what you'll do to take care of yourself and keep yourself safe should the thing you most fear happen. Sometimes it's really difficult to acknowledge that we're afraid of being abandoned or disowned or shunned or no longer accepted in our home. For many of us, when we're afraid of disappointing our parents, what we're really afraid of is being abandoned. And so allow yourself to sit with that fear. I'm afraid of being abandoned. What is my parachute? What will I do if that happens? Who will I turn to? Who's my support system? And if you find yourself coming up empty, if there's no material there for a parachute, maybe you find yourself saying, how do I build a parachute first before I risk the disappointment? So I've talked many times on Instagram with people who are teenagers who still live at home with their parents who are saying, how do I tell my parents I don't believe the church is true anymore? Or how do I tell my parents that I'm gay? How do I do that? For many of them, their worst fears, they'll be abandoned. For some of them, their fears, they'll be kicked out of the house and that they won't have access to shelter and food and clothing and the things that they need until they reach adulthood. And so for some of these kids, I talk about what is your parachute? What would you do if that happened? For some of them, they say, I'll go live with my aunt or I'll sleep on my best friend's couch or they have a plan, a parachute of what they would do if the worst happened. But for some of them, they're like, I would probably be homeless. I don't know what I would do. I don't have any friends that would support me. And so it's important to have a parachute. Fear is your friend. Fear is trying to say, hey, don't leap unless you have something that's going to catch you. Do not do that. Know what you're going to do as your backup plan. Know how you're going to keep yourself safe and sane. So if you're feeling terrified, listen to your fear, ask it what it's most afraid of, and then ask yourself, do I have a parachute already? What will I do? Who can I fall back on? Where is my support? And if you're coming up empty, then start asking yourself, how can I make a parachute? Where could I find support? Where might I learn to care for myself? What would I do instead? And having that parachute will make disappointing your parents much less scary. Still uncomfortable. It never gets not uncomfortable. I still feel uncomfortable when I know I'm disappointing my mother. And I disappoint her frequently. So understand it never gets comfortable. I don't imagine it ever gets completely comfortable for people who jump out of planes, even after they've done it a hundred times. You're still going to get your heart palpitating. You're still going to get sweaty in your armpits before you jump out of the plane. So know that disappointing your parents is still going to feel uncomfortable, but having a parachute allows you to jump anyway. And if you don't have a parachute, Figure out where you can start finding the material for one. So for today, here's our small step forward. We're going to go back to Glennon Doyle's quote from Untamed, that one of the best ways we honor our parents is by learning to trust the person your parents raised, which is yourself. I think one of the most startling discoveries I made was that the woman I am today was highly influenced by my mother and my father in some really beautiful ways. I have a lot of values in common with my parents, and that's helped me find connection. 
Granted, I use those values in very different ways than my parents do. I think my parents had very specific expectations attached to those values. We share many of the same values. We have common roots, but we just use them differently according to our own life experience and and the things that matter most to us. For example, my mother taught me to actively look for and support those that need a friend. Granted, when I was taught those things, I was taught them as a Mormon girl, and underlying that was a message that if I was really friendly to people, and if I was really supportive to people, not only would they feel better, but they'd be more open to the gospel. But that value that I can be a support for those that need a friend, that value that I can be a person that is a safe space for others is still something that I hold very dear. It's still a core part of my identity. And then I also had a value that my mother taught me to speak up when I think something's wrong. We were taught to be peculiar people in Mormonism. We were taught to speak up about our values, speak up about when we thought things were unjust or wrong. That's my work every day. So even though I was taught those things in Mormonism, even though I was taught those things with the understanding that I was going to be a missionary and this influence to spread Mormonism, I still utilize these two beliefs in my work today, not to convince people I'm right, but to help them feel supported while they figure out what's right for themselves. I use these two values all the time in my work. Speaking up when I see something is wrong. Speaking up when I think something is harmful or destructive. And also being a support to those who sometimes feel very alone and need a friend. While they're figuring out who they are after religious transition. And figuring out where they want to go from here. This podcast is a part of the values my parents instilled in me. We have similar values. There's a connection there, even though I interpret those values in very different ways. It's been a beautifully connective thing to point out to myself and sometimes even to my mother. I am the woman that you taught me to be. I care fiercely for others. I'm a support to people who need a friend. I talk openly when I see something that I think is harmful or destructive. I am honoring you by loving and valuing and accepting myself and trusting who I am. So this week, I challenge you to find small ways in which you recognize the person your parents raised in yourself and the ways that shows up powerfully in your life today. Ways that it helps you trust yourself more deeply ways that it helps you accept yourself, ways that it helps you navigate and find your way in the world. So tap into what are the parts of myself that my parents raised me to become and how is that morphed with my faith transition in ways that support my life today. I look forward to hearing your insights on the Emancipate Yourself Facebook group, in my Instagram direct messages, on my Facebook direct messages, or you can email me at terry at emancipatedcoaching.com. I would love to hear from you. I love your input. I love your feedback. And I can't wait to hear what comes up for you and anything else that you have questions about or that you have experience with. My interactions with you 
are some of the best parts of my week, and I enjoy it immensely. Thank you for joining me today, and I'll see you next Sunday.